This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. We are now experiencing what's being called the mindfulness revolution as increasingly people become aware of the benefits of mindfulness in all aspects of their daily life. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about a practical way to improve our relationship with ourselves and more efficiently manage the stresses that are associated with dispute resolution and conflict. As we become more intimate with ourselves by cultivating mindfulness and self-compassion, this naturally is going to ripple out to others and will transform our relationships with our partners, our families, our workplaces, and our communities. Specifically, we're going to be talking about how we can use mindfulness to develop a more compassionate, friendly relationship with ourselves and others, how we can use mindfulness to learn to spot and change dysfunctional patterns in our relationships, or how we can use it to calm and soothe our emotions and be there for others, how we can use mindfulness to communicate more effectively and enhance intimacy and connection and empathy, how it can help work within families and larger systems such as workplaces, how we can use it to communicate more effectively and to reduce defensive patterns in our life. All in all, mindfulness is pretty cool stuff, so stick around. You're going to want to learn how and why to make mindfulness a part of your life. It all starts right after this. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. You see me around the neighborhood and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Margie Ulbrich, who is the co-author with Richard Chambers of Mindful Relationships, Creating Genuine Connection with Ourselves and Others. Margie, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, and thanks for having me. I'm in. I think you need to start off with something here, which is a little bit of an explanation about what mindfulness is. I mean, mindfulness comes up in so many different things about meditation and about eating and about life in general, but it, which has taken it to the point where it's, it's almost unrecognizable or, or impossible to pin down what it actually means. So how are you using the word? It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? I agree with you. It's everywhere and um, being used in all sorts of contexts. But we are using mindfulness in our book to talk about awareness and Awareness connected into the body, into the present moment. So um, there's so many things that we can describe it as, but I think in a nutshell, the simplest way of describing it is being connected to the here and now, to our bodies, to what's happening around us, to our environment, awareness of other people, and awareness of what's going on inside of ourselves. Okay, and this is just not in the context necessarily of 
meditation. We're going to talk about that little, in a little bit, but just in life, or, or how, how do you actually do this? I mean, what is it that you're saying to yourself to keep yourself mindful as opposed to either yeah. getting sucked into the minutia of things or you know, missing stuff mm. altogether? Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a practice. It's a way of actually starting to live from a perspective where we cultivate the witness, the capacity to notice what's going on in any given moment. And that stops us from getting sucked in as much or getting caught up as much in our flight-fight response or even freeze response. And practicing mindfulness is something that it's a skill that we develop over time. Meditation is one aspect of it. But even just practicing throughout the day, pausing and just stopping and, and what's going on for me right now in this moment? Can I feel my feet on the ground? Can I feel connected? Am I present? So there's, there's many ways to approach it. All right. It sounds like a lovely idea. But I need you to, to take <laughs> us a little, a little bit further and, and talk about the science because there's, there's actually some science that, that that supports the idea that this is actually a good thing. I mean, because otherwise it's just, oh, yes, of course, you should just be aware of what's going on and not drive yourself crazy. But so tell, tell us about the, the proven benefits of this sort of thing. Well, the, the science is just continuing to explode with information about the brain. And um, all of the evidence suggests that our brain continues to develop. We can continue to lay down new neural pathways. You know, years ago, we used to think that the brain stopped developing um, by the time we'd reached adulthood, but we now know that's no longer true. And so practicing mindfulness and all the scans and all the, the scientists have done all this research shows that we can actually change the structure of our brain. We actually lay down new neural pathways which helps us create a different default setting, a different kind of way of being and resting, which then affects our nervous system and affects all of our systems, all of our health. Absolutely every aspect of our being is affected by it. Well, I guess as a, as a skeptic in general and somebody who's kind of used to asking devil's advocate questions, what... How, how do you know? I mean, how does this manifest itself? Okay, so we're building more neural connections and the brain is changing, but is that going to help us be better people? Is that going to help us have stronger relationships? I mean, how how do we know that this is any good for you besides just it feels good and it's relaxing? Which is not well, a bad we, thing, we, but, you know. Yeah, actually, one of the, the things that we say in the book, I mean, is... is um, don't accept anybody else's version or don't don't actually be a skeptic. It's good to be a skeptic. Test it out ourselves. And we know then by actually recognizing in ourselves the difference. We, we recognize that whereas we might have once got involved in an argument, we actually, after practicing mindfulness, now know how to pause. We now know how to actually bring our compassion online and bring our empathy online and slow our heart rate down and slow our breathing down so that we can be more aware, be more connected of what's going on. So it, the, one of the things that we say is, is um, a, a beautiful kind of aspect of this is 
you don't need to take anybody else's word for it. You practice with yourself and you be curious. You you develop a, um, a curiosity and a, um, an openness, I guess, to discovering for yourself how the impact actually does affect you uh, in any given moment. But, I, but people find over a period of time, the more they practice it, the, the flight freeze response is actually deactivated. They are more able to be present, more able to be noticing and be witnessing what's going on rather than getting sucked down the usual rabbit holes. So, um, we, you know, the scientists tell us, and, and I'm not a scientist, but the scientists tell us that with all their scanning and all their research, it's, it's proven. But my response to, to your question is very much test it for yourself, be your own best expert in a way, work out, work out for yourself what happens when you start pausing, start meditating and start practicing being curious and compassionate with yourself and with others. Well, how did it work out in your own life, in your, your pre-mindful days to now? <laughs> um, look, it's had a big impact on my life, of course, otherwise I wouldn't be so involved in it and, and um, so passionate about it. I'm a therapist and I'm also a lawyer and so I've, I've worked on, um, I, I used to be a far more anxious person than I am now, so I've worked on myself with strategies and particularly I've found meditating very helpful um, and meditating while I'm walking as well, so not just sitting but, but being more kind of present in the moment and I just find my overall sense of well-being is enhanced I'm just more conscious, not all the time, you know, like everyone. I, it's a, it's a, a journey, I think, until we die, really, to continue to develop in awareness and, and to be on that growth path. But um, I found that the quality of my relationships has improved and the quality of the presence that I can bring to my clients who come to see me with all sorts of situations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but, so but it's, it's not... A, a, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, yes, it has been a, a personal experience for me too. Yeah, but it's not magic, right? I mean, if you have a problem in your life, it's not that, that problem's not going to go away, and you probably should spend some time thinking about solutions and how to approach the problem and, and different alternatives and things that you might have done differently or should have definitely done differently or wouldn't, you know, so the, the things that people can get obsessed with, I mean, there, there's there's a fine line between going through all of these these decision-making points and getting dragged into the rabbit hole, as you put it. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it's interesting. I'm hearing when you say it's not magic, I agree with you. It's, and it can kind of be toted around as, as the magic panacea. So I, I hear what you're saying, and, and we do need to be rational, and we do need to be solution-focused, and we do need to be grounded in a way we can't just be living in the in some lovely fantasy world where everything is mindful but um i think that the really what happens is that the more mindful we become the more we bring online our rational thinking capacities our problem solving skills we actually um can increase our capacity to be calmly able to think about how we want to approach any particular problem and also as you say to to reflect and to look back on what we would prefer to have done differently but one of the beautiful things about practicing mindfulness is that we develop a capacity to be more compassionate and more accepting not only of others but of ourselves and so once we reduce that kind of inner critic and that that constantly 
you know, I should have, I should have, I should have kind of voice inside our heads, that kind of removes a layer that then stops us from actually just being in a, in a, a more empowered, more effective, more thoughtful, you know, more productive way. So it, it um, while it's not a magic solution, it, um, it has a lot of benefits, obviously. Yeah, and the benefits can, <clears throat> can last a lifetime, I guess. I think that's absolutely right. We're finding that, that um, anyone can, can practice mindfulness. And, and we start with, you know, being mindful parents, with children, right. um, all, through, all through the life cycle. Talking with Margie Ulbrich, who's the co-author of Mindful Relationships, Creating Genuine Connection with Ourselves and Others. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll pick up and continue talking with Margie about mindful families in particular. My name is Dale Pazinski, and this is how I live United. I volunteer with United Way, helping the homeless in my community by teaching computer skills and helping them build a basic resume to save on their very own USB drive. It's huge when somebody says, hey man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with Margie Ulbrich, who's the co-author with Richard Chambers of Mindful Relationships, Creating Genuine Connection with Ourselves and Others. And uh, as, as I said just before the break, I want to have you focus a little bit now on how we can take mindfulness and make it part of your family life. And I guess before we get to that, l- let me just have you talk about meditation. Is that something that is absolutely necessary, or can you be mindful without that? Um, I think my I think meditation absolutely helps, um, but in a way, um, it, it, it's a starting point, but it's also not the end result. And um, even starting with a small meditation practice, you know, like five minutes a day, is what we recommend for people. Um, that's a really good starting point and then building to a more regular practice. Um, I'm not quite sure, you know, the extent to which we can be mindful without spending some quiet time and actually developing that capacity to be with ourselves and, and be inwards. Um, you know, it's, I, I don't think it, we can be as mindful without meditation, I suppose I'd have to say. But um, there are many ways to be mindful without practicing meditation at the same time and and that's just really stopping being in the body checking what's going on sensing into our feet sensing into our our whole bodies actually and feeling grounded and that sense of connection to ourselves Um, we can do that anytime any place wherever we are it doesn't have to be in the context of meditation for sure how do you begin to get kids meditating uh, well, one, of course, like everything with kids, it's modelled. So one of the best ways is actually to from to get kids from a really young age and, and, and just make it part of family life, you know, set up a little nice gentle place in the house with a candle or some flowers or just something that feels a peaceful, serene kind of place in the family, in the home, and start with a practice of a few minutes a day 
or from a young age, you know, just listening and being with children before they go to bed in a quiet time, kind of getting that contemplative, quiet, restful idea as part of family life, as part of a soothing and a settling. Um, that idea can just be kind of come through family life being modelled from a very young age. And then just, just that, you know, starting a regular sort of practice as kids get older to, you know, we, we might meditate um, after dinner or before we go to bed or in the morning for five minutes. Meditating with kids is a great way. They, they, kids actually quite enjoy meditating when they are given the opportunity in the space, generally we find. Okay, how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you yeah. meditate? Yeah. Yeah. Look, there, there's um, so many different ways and approaches and there's mantras and, and there's, you know, different religions, different theologies of meditation. And it's a very personal thing. And I think that they all have their place. So I'm not someone who advocates actually a particular way being better than any other way. But myself personally, um, I, I sit in the chair and I ground myself and you know, feel myself in the chair with my feet on the ground and, and then gradually sense inwards and start connecting to my breath and noticing my breath and the, the one of the best ways to um, focus, I think, is, is focusing on the breath and just noticing what it's doing and that, that can be really powerful. Um, some people really enjoy a mantra and then thoughts come and we notice that they come and the idea is not to judge them and not to be critical, that we get lost in that default kind of setting of following our you know, thoughts of what we're going to do today or what we should have done last night and we just notice and gently bring the thoughts back and centre back into the breath or back onto the mantra. So um, it's simple in a way. It's not as complicated as people think. And... What would you expect that the benefits would be for the family? If you have a family that meditates together, how is that going to change their interactions with each other? Well, I think that it will change their interactions in a, in a really positive way. It, um, over time, it will develop a capacity to be calm in the family, and that's one of the things that families thrive on, you know, to have a, a nice, um, warm, calm, open, receptive atmosphere. And we know that we, we are co-regulating each other. As mammals, we, we settle each other's nervous systems. So to have a whole family that's meditating, um, there, there's a real resonance that develops from that. And there's a capacity to become kinder and more compassionate, more gentle, more understanding, I think. And, and increase in awareness of ourselves and others so all those lovely things like reducing fighting and um, you know bringing a lot more conscious awareness into the way we speak and the way we treat each other and care for each other can you explain that just a little bit I'm still having a little bit of trouble kind of grasping this whole idea about how being mindful is going to change the way that you interact with people I think um, it's, you know, I'm just trying to grapple with through the best way to explain it to you. My own experience is that through practicing being more mindful, we create more space. I think that's one of the best ways to describe it. We create more space in our own system. We, we bring online that capacity to 
notice and observe what's going on. And once we do that, we slow things down. There's a bit of a pause, a bit of a, um, you know, it might only just be a second before we notice that we, our instinct might have been to say something that would with more aggression than we'd like, or it might have been to yell or scream, or we start to actually really become more aware of the impact that we have on others, our body language, the way we speak. Um, you know, our hearts become more open. I know, I know in a way it, it, that might sound um, perhaps something that's hard to grasp if, for, for someone who hasn't had this experience. But the, and the best way, of course, is to practice and experiment sure. and be curious about what happens. Yeah, I mean, it's just a little bit of a leap, though. I mean, I it's and I understand it. I I have meditated in the past. I'm not doing it now, but I I know that <clears throat> that it can change and make you feel more calm and at peace. But I'm just kind of wondering about the the nitty gritty of the whole thing about how that's gonna how meditation is going to get you to be nicer to people. Better relationship. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I think um, the short answer is that it actually helps us to be more able to pause and, and less likely to go to that fight-flight response and more able to just be conscious and, and in the moment so that we can actually refrain from doing things or refrain from saying things on automatic pilot that we will later regret. And then the more we practice it, the more we're also able to sense into and get awareness and understanding of what's going on for the other person. Um, you know, we might be curious about asking different questions, um, you know, thinking and noticing the effect of, what, of when we're more likely to blame or, you know, the typical kind of um, angry, attacking, defensive responses that we might be more used to having. We're actually able to start to see what's going on and to actually think, hang on, yeah, no, if I pause a little bit here, that's not what it's not at all what I, I need or want to do. That's not going to bring about the result that I want or that, that's kind for this relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fascinating thing. And it's, as you're saying, which makes it a difficult interview in some ways, it's, you know, you have to try it out to, to be able to see it, that it's difficult to explain it. But it's certainly something that's, that's worth doing. Um, and you, you mentioned a couple of different ways of doing it, whether you have a mantra or just breathing, which is something that I, I've kind of done both of those and find the breathing one a little bit more, a little more portable, I guess, rather than having to focus mm -hmm. on something. But, um, I mean, do you feel that, that uh, you should be in a completely quiet place? Is having music good or having a guided meditation, for example? I mean, you know, that there's lots of CDs and and things you can get of John Kabat-Zinn and other people who are in, in the mindfulness field who have kind of lead you through guided meditations. Are, are those as good as the do-it-yourself kind? I think they are, yes. I think, it's, as, it, as we've said, it's a, it is an individual thing. Um, ultimately, what I find to be most helpful for people is to develop a meditation practice that works for them, that they actually... You know, not are not doing out of some sort of you know. Oh no, I've got to do my meditation. But there's a, um, a, a an experience of wanting to do it that that comes from doing something that that is enjoyable and yeah. um, is is nurturing for them. 
Margie Ulbrich, the co-author with Richard Chambers of Mindful Relationships, Creating Genuine Connections with Ourselves and Others. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Hi, this is John Androsik of Five for Fighting, here for RAD, the entertainment industry's voice for road safety. You know, style is a personal thing, and your lifestyle is your business. But if you take it on the road, it becomes everybody's business. So please, plan ahead, designate before you celebrate. Friends, don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brutt. Now, I frequently ask for reader and listener comment, and often we get a lot of it. And so here's one that was a direct result of a, a listener writing in. Dear Mr. Dad, in one of your columns a few months ago, you responded to a new dad who wasn't feeling terribly connected to his baby. Your advice was realistic and sensible, except for one thing. Toward the end of your answer, you recommended that he tickle his baby. Tickling can sometimes become cruel, especially with toddlers or older children. There are other ways to have fun with the baby and make him or her smile. I have to admit that your email surprised me. I never thought for a second that tickling was anything but fun for kids. But after several other readers wrote in with the same basic comment, I took a look at the soft underbelly of the tickling industrial complex. And joking aside, you make a very good point, one that I think is important to share. So let's start with a little history. Some anthropologists believe that tickling is nature's way of encouraging parents to interact with their babies. Most of us would agree that giggling babies are a lot more enjoyable to be around than crying ones. Others believe that our response to tickling are self-protective. The areas that tend to be the most ticklish, underarms and stomach, the bottoms of the feet, are also extremely sensitive. The self-defense theory may explain why our instinctive reaction to being tickled is to push away whatever's tickling us, whether that's a human attacker or a nasty insect. So what's wrong with tickling? Well, like anything else, in moderation, it's usually not a big deal. The problem is that the tickler and tickly don't often agree on the definition of moderation. In the tickler's defense, we tend to interpret children's laughter as an indication that they're happy with what's going on. But with tickling, the laughter that's being produced is a physiological reaction to touch and may have very little to do with actual enjoyment. That's where things start getting a little dicey. Most of us can remember a time, or more than one, where we were tickled well beyond the point when it had stopped being fun. And we can also remember the frightening feeling of helplessness and being out of control when we couldn't get the tickler or ticklers to stop either because he, she, or they refused to stop or because we were gasping so hard that we simply couldn't get the words out of our mouth. Helplessness and fear can turn to humiliation and shame when the tickled child has an accident or bursts into tears. Unwanted tickling tells kids that A, bigger people have a right to touch little people whenever and however they please, and B, that little people have to go along with whatever bigger people want them to do. The solution? Well, it's a two-step process. First, Put your child in charge of the when. Let the child ask you to tickle. If you'd like to do some tickling, ask first. Either way, it's your child's call. Second, put the child in charge of how long. Have him come up with a safe word or a gesture that means we're done. That could be an attempt to roll away or a firm stop. And pay attention to the signals. 
Every minute or two, take a break and ask your child whether he wants to continue, even if he hasn't done or said anything to get you to stop. The paying attention to signs piece of this is especially important with infants who have neither the vocabulary nor the physical ability to indicate that they've had enough. They can start fussing or crying, though, and that is a pretty big hint that you should stop right now. You can get a lot more Ask Mr. Dad columns at MrDad.com as well as AskMrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad segment or a Parents at Play segment, again, depending on which week it is. Hey, but wait, don't go quite yet because there's more positive parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. My name is Ruth Rusi. I'm a retired teacher. I'm 91 years old, and this is how I live united. I say retired, but not really. Once a week, I read books to children as part of United Way's education program. Reading to a child creates links between language and literacy. It creates a bond between grown-up and child. And believe it or not, it prepares them for a better academic future. Oh, we read about frogs and flies and pigs with wings, all sorts of juicy stuff. It's a joy to watch all those little faces. I figure I have the time and they have the need. And I've always believed that if we're not here to help each other, then what are we here for, really? My name is Ruth Rusi. I help kids prepare to succeed in school. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live united. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there. Thanks for sticking with us. This is the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. Paul Tufts' best-selling book, How Children Succeed, first introduced us to research that shows that children's character strengths, like grit and perseverance and self-control and optimism, play a critical and often overlooked role in their success. After that book came out, Tufts spent months on the road speaking to teachers and community groups, and after each talk, he would often get the same question from concerned readers in the audience. Okay, now that we know this, what do we do? Well, Tuff has spent the last year and a half trying to answer that question, and the result is his new book, Helping Children Succeed. His conclusion is, we should stop trying to teach qualities like grit and self-control to our kids. Instead, he argues, we need to recognize that these capabilities are the product of children's environment in the home and in school. If we want to make kids more motivated, engaged, and productive in the classroom, he says, we have to find innovative ways to change those environments. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Paul Tuff about his approach to the educational challenges that are faced by low-income children. He draws on groundbreaking new research in neuroscience and psychology and education. And he's going to explain to us why kids who grow up in poverty often struggle in school. And he's going to show us what practical steps the adults in their lives, from parents and teachers to policymakers and philanthropists, can take to improve these kids' chances for a positive future. 
McGruff the Crime Dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Looks them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you know. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Paul Tuff, who's the author of Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. So this is a follow-up, to a certain extent, to your book, How Children Succeed. And Tell us a little bit about how you got from that one to this one. Sure. Well, there were a couple of things. One was, uh, so How Children Succeed was a book that, that focused on this set of qualities that are sometimes called non-cognitive skills, sometimes called character strengths, things like grit and curiosity, conscientiousness, self-control, and optimism. Uh, and it looked at the research that showed that these were particularly important in young people's success. Um, <clears throat> and after that book came out, I went around and spoke to different groups of um, teachers and parents and uh, people who are working directly with children. And I found, especially when I was talking to people who are working with kids uh, who are growing up in poverty or other kinds of adversity, the question I kept getting from them was, um, you know, the stories are fascinating, the characters are great, what do we actually do? What can we take from this research that will help us change the way we practice tomorrow morning? Um, and so I decided I wanted to write a book that answered that question, that tried to distill from all of this um, often kind of abstract research, real strategies and solutions for people who are working with kids and especially kids in poverty. Okay. Well, let's talk about, I start with the kids in poverty thing because I think that, that there is a rather, well, I have to say that the book has got a number of situations where the the data that you're presenting is rather horrifying. Uh, you talk about in 2013, the United States reached an educational milestone for the first time a majority of the country's public school students fell below the federal government's threshold for being low income. How did we ever get to that point? I mean, it, it seems like, I mean, you, we hear a lot about income inequality. We hear a lot about the rich and poor and the rich are getting richer. But I don't think most people would say that more than half of people out there, more than half of families, are below the poverty line. Well, to, to clarify one thing, so in order to, to meet the government's definition for low income, meaning you're eligible for a free or reduced price lunch, you're not actually below the poverty line. You're below 180% of the poverty line. Well, so, you're still uh, not doing well. You're still not doing well, absolutely. So I think that part of what's happened to, to make that, that group so big is that child poverty has increased over the last uh, decade or so. But I think it's also that that, that sort of next tier of not – technically poor, but not doing great families, um, those are families, I think, that have really struggled since the, the recession, the big recession began back in, in 2008, 2009. Um, and, and I think that those are, you know, the families who haven't recovered uh, as well as other families have. And so, yeah, I, I was really struck by that statistic because, you know, for, for a long time, for more than a decade, I've been writing especially about kids who are growing up in, in low-income families. Um, but I think there's always been this this sense in our country that this is sort of a, a, a 
you know, a, a serious problem, but a small problem. You know, this is like there's there's sort of mainstream education, and then there are the problems of the poor kids over here. Um, and so the fact that low-income kids are now the majority, you know, barely the majority, but technically the majority of students in our public schools, um, I, it just sort of shifted my thinking to, to feeling like this is really a, a problem that we all need to solve. It's no longer something that we can just say is, you know, a side issue for poverty experts to deal with. This is something that, that uh, we all need to take on. And certainly right. if you're a teacher in the United States today, you know these statistics. You know that this is a big part of what teaching now is. Right. So before we get into the, okay, what do you do about this, I think we need to talk just a little bit about, without sounding harsh, so what? Mm. You know, so does, and and you're going to answer that, I know, because there are quite a few deficits that kids who are low income have relative to their, their higher income peers. But talk a little bit about that. What What is going on? I mean, how, how are lower income kids suffering and, and what's happening with them? Good question. And, and so this question of sort of what is it about, about growing up in, in poverty or in a low-income family that makes it difficult for students to succeed is something that this is now my third book. And in some ways, it's a question that's motivated all of these books. And so I've been, I've been trying to figure that out for a long time. And I think it's, it's important to say at the beginning that certainly a lot of the problems in education that I, that I write about, um, especially in this new book, are, are more common among uh, kids who live in low-income families. But they aren't um, exclusively the problems of kids who, who live in uh, low-income families, and they also aren't true of every kid who, who grows up in a low-income family. There are lots of kids who are growing up in poverty who are um, thriving and excelling, even excelling at school. But that said, um, what, what researchers and especially psychologists and neuroscientists have uh, been able to demonstrate uh, with increasing clarity over the last decade or so is that growing up in any form of adversity, and, and, and poverty is, is often uh, uh, an environment in which this happens, is stressful for kids. Um, there's just more likely to be instability and, and chaos and uncertainty uh, in a child's life. And that has a huge impact on the development of their uh, sort of neurological connections, their stress response system. And, and, and this, this the impact of stress is something that has become more and more clear to me um, as I've done this reporting. Uh, it's something that neuroscientists, I think, are much more aware of than the rest of us. When kids experience what some pediatricians call toxic stress in childhood, um, it, it, it has a, a biological effect on the way that they develop. They're, you know, it activates their fight-or-flight response. It you know, pumps them full of uh, adrenaline. It activates their immune system. And all of these but in, in a negative way. I mean, in a negative way, exactly. One of the interesting things about it is, like, from an evolutionary standpoint, these adaptations make sense, right? You're, if your system perceives that you're surrounded by, by threats uh, and dangers, it reacts by preparing for those threats. That makes sense if, you know, in a, in a short-term situation. Exactly. It doesn't make yeah. sense if you're, you know, in, in, in public school, in kindergarten, because, you're, you're, you know, when your fight-or-flight response is constantly amped up, it's hard to concentrate, it's hard to sit still, it's hard to get along with your peers, and those things really matter in elementary yeah. school. And, and that can cause long-term permanent damage. I mean, uh, f- physiological damage. I mean, it's, it can, can affect the heart, the circulatory system, it can affect uh, all sorts of other things and cause, and end up with kids who are sicker, physically sicker, right? And adults, yeah. I yeah. mean, so w- one yeah. of the one of the big pieces of research that I, I wrote about in this book is this thing called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, 
And what it demonstrated is, is that when, if you take any group of, of adults, even middle-class adults, the ones who've experienced significant amounts of stress and trauma in childhood, have cancer rates that are twice as high as normal, heart disease rates that are twice as, as high as normal. This is something that is a problem well into adulthood as well. You know, it's interesting, the, the connection between education and health, but it, it seems like it can, can go both ways, right? I mean, it's not necessarily that one causes the other, but they both seem to be associated with each other somehow, that people who have less education tend to be less healthy. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying in a way is that, that kids who are, are less healthy and that could be less healthy because of the stress in their lives are not going to be learning as much because their brains may not be able to focus or concentrate on things. So you end up with this this uh, cycle that just never seems to have an end. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think that it can have an end, and I think there's lots that the rest of us can do to, to intervene in and, and support the lives of people who are living in those stressful situations, and especially uh, children, to help them overcome these problems. Um, but, but that said, this is, this is what that stress research really makes clear, is that when kids are growing up in, in intensely stressful environments, it's bad for them in all kinds of ways. It, it has physiological effects, but it also has uh, psychological and even neurological effects. Um, it, again, it's possible to overcome them, but it's a lot of work. And so, so one of the places where uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of trying to steer us in terms of intervention is not just to wait for school um, to, to try to intervene in the educational lives of the of children who are growing up in adversity, but to do interventions as well in the first few years of life. If we can prevent uh, these instances of toxic stress in the lives of, of young kids, then we don't have to you know remediate them later on. And what does that look like? Well, it seems like one of the most important um, levers that we have to intervene in the lives of especially young kids in the first say, three years of their lives, is their parents. Um, one thing that really, another number that really struck me was the United States spends uh, less on, uh, a lower percentage of our of the money that we spend um, on education, on early childhood, than almost any other developed country. And even among the, the money that we spend in early childhood, only 6% goes to the first three years. The other 94% goes to three and four and five-year-olds. And there's this huge opportunity in those early years because that's when so many of these uh, stress-related adaptations take place. But it's a difficult moment in which to intervene. You know, mm-hmm. there is no pre-K, there is no school for kids who are that age. And so the lever that seems to make most sense and, and that researchers are finding can be especially effective is working with those, the parents of those kids um, to create more stressful, warm, responsive environments in the home. Yeah. Uh, sometimes that seems like a huge amount of work, but what these interventions show is that relatively short um, uh, interventions with those parents, working with them you know, for, for 10 weeks or so, yeah. uh, can really transform the environment in a home and thus transform the life of the child. Talking with Paul Tuff, who's the author of Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Paul. There once was a boy wizard whose name was Larry Smarter. Larry, why weren't you in Professor Dinky Doodle's mythical creature classification class? Well, I'm taking Algebra 2 in a foreign language. Oh, so you can talk to unicorns? Uh, exactly. Unless they're French. Larry wanted to go to college, so he visited knowhowtogo.org to find the classes he really needed. Getting into college doesn't happen magically. Learn more at knowhowtogo.org. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brod. If you're just joining us, talking with Paul Tuff, who's the author of Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. And, Paul, we were just talking before the break about uh, working with parents and how that is an, is an important part of, of helping the kids. Uh, do you find that, I mean, I understand that you know, poverty and, and you talk about the, so many other social ills, I guess, besides poverty, tend to be generational in a way, mm-hmm. that you know the parents who are having some of these problems or had these problems when they were growing up are probably more likely to have kids who have those kinds of problems. And so does it matter whether you start with the parents or the kids? Well, I think the interventions that are most effective do both, you know. So, so certainly working with um, with low-income kids is, is always important, and there's a lot that can be done with them in the home and in school. But I think what, what researchers are discovering is that only working on kids and not thinking about parents is missing this this great opportunity. Um, and and so, I, I think I think in, when we think about policy, we have this reluctance to try to you know intervene in 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 private families, you know, to sort of give parents advice and support uh, that might change the way that they're dealing with their kids. We think that's just the family's business, and and it absolutely is. We shouldn't be you know intervening against anyone's will. But what's really clear to me in spending time in some of these programs that are working to support uh, parents, especially parents who are you know, living in really difficult circumstances, is that parents are really eager for this kind of help, at least the ones that, I, that I've reported on. They, they, um, yeah, and, and the programs that work the best are not sort of preaching to parents or you know, taking a superior attitude. They're saying you know, parenting is hard, and this is something as a parent that I'm certainly aware of. You know, I think we all need help as parents. And so uh, programs that work directly with parents, trying to give them uh, sort of targeted support to change the emotional quality of their relationships with their kids, it can have this really tremendous effect. You know, I want to jump ahead a little bit and talk about discipline. And there's, if if people are interested in this, they can look up these statistics on their own. But looking at kids who are disciplined, kids who are suspended, expelled from school, tends to fall predominantly on lower income and minority kids, and what are the effects of that, not only on the kids, because I understand that once once you get a kid who's suspended from school, they're much more likely to end up repeating a grade, they end, end up losing out socially because of their peers are moved on someplace else, but you talk about some of the effects on the other kids, the kids who are not left behind or not expelled. Talk about that. Yeah, this is a study out of uh, Kentucky that I, I didn't know about until I started reporting this book. But you, even people who, who admit that suspending kids uh, is not great for those kids themselves, they, they often support the, the, the policy, which has been predominant in, in American public schools over the last 20 years, of, of suspending kids, you know, the sort of zero-tolerance prob- uh, programs, uh, zero-tolerance policies for, for kids who act up or disobey uh, teachers in school. And, but they say well, the, the reason we need to do that is for the rest of the kids. If we get rid of the troublemakers, the kids who are left behind can do better. And what this study from Kentucky found is, is exactly what you said, that actually being in a, in a school that suspends lots of kids, um, it has a negative effect even on the kids who don't get suspended. There's something about the atmosphere, um, sort of the emotional climate in a school that's created when you have that kind of contentious relationship between the students and the teachers and the administrators that stresses everybody out. And that schools that are able to take a um, an approach to discipline that is much more about trying to solve problems, trying to address root causes of why some kids, you know, misbehave or get upset or act up, 
that those schools, the, the climate for all students changes and changes in a much more positive kind of way. But I think you're going to hear back from teachers and from administrators who are going to say we are understaffed and we are under budget and the only way that we can get everybody else to have, you know, the other 23 kids in the class to have a remotely positive educational experience is to boot out number 24. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, it, and uh, I think that I think that is what a lot of um, what a lot of teachers think. But I think that what is um, striking to me about this data is that it really calls that into question. And I think it makes us think, like, well, why are we really suspending so many kids? Another statistic about suspensions that struck me um, was that in Chicago, which is one of the places which is, is most clearly studied, most of the suspensions were not for um, violence or even sort of threats of violence. It was for talking back in class, you know, like not following dress code, um, uh, you know, having a cell phone when you weren't supposed to have one. And, you know, these are problems, like you need to have rules, you need to have consequences for not following rules, but they aren't really about improving safety in school, which is, I think, how we, de how we describe it often. They're just for kids who have trouble regulating their impulses. And, and what the research shows is that there are lots of other ways to work with those kids, that the reason that, that so many students struggle in that realm is because of the way they've grown up and what that's done to their stress response system. And actually, this is not an unsolvable problem, that when you work with those kids and give them you know, the kind of connection and support that they need, they, their behavior often changes. Uh, but the way that we deal with kids like that in school has exactly the opposite effect. It just amps up the confrontation, amps up the anxiety in the classroom and in the school, and those kids just become more and more troubled. Talk a little bit about, uh, going back to the topic of your previous book, about what grit and perseverance are and why they're so important. Sure. So, um, again, in my last book, I, I talked about this whole suite of non-cognitive skills, and grit and perseverance uh, are central, I think, to this, to this growing field of trying to understand what this non-cognitive realm is all about. And what... I think every teacher understands is that when kids are able to persevere uh, in the classroom, when they're able to stick with um, problems, to bounce back after disappointments, that's an essential part of learning, you know, because you can't learn without failing a few times along the way, and you can't deal properly with failure unless you really know how to persevere. The problem that I talk about in this new book is that these sort of environmental forces, which are true in so many kids, in the lives of so many kids who are growing up in poverty, make it much more difficult for them to persevere. Um, it's just harder to feel the, the kind of emotional um, centeredness that you need in order to say, okay, fine, I didn't get it right that time, but I'll get it right the next time. You know, that's hard for anybody. It's like, it's a bummer to fail. <laughs> I mean, to fail at anything. It's, it's, a, it's, it's difficult emotionally to deal with setbacks. And so when kids get the kind of support that they need to feel like, yeah, there's a reason to persevere, um, there's a purpose to what I'm doing, there is support that I can get from the people around me, they're much more likely to, to try again. And without trying again, uh, it's really difficult to learn anything. And how do you get these kids to try again? Well, I think it's really about the climate in in the classroom and in the school as a whole. It goes back to you know things as as basic as discipline policies. When those discipline policies are in place that that are 
geared toward um, excluding kids and suspending kids, uh, it makes it much more much less likely that they're going to feel the the kind of belonging that they need to feel at school in order to want to persevere um, when they're doing work in the classroom that is you know boring and repetitive and not particularly challenging. They're less likely to have the sort of mindsets, the sort of feelings that make them want to persevere, and so. Yeah, I, I think some people took this early research on things like grit and perseverance to say, like, okay, we know that it's important to persevere. We just need to, you know, like yell at kids enough until <laughs> they just start persevering at things. Yeah. And in fact, what the psychological research shows is that kids persevere when they feel a sense of uh, belonging and competence and autonomy. And those are things that you can't, like, lecture kids about. <laughs> you can't just persuade kids to feel a sense of belonging in school. You actually have to create an environment of belonging in the school. Yeah. And then when you do that, and it, it's a lot of work, but it's it's definitely not impossible, and it changes the, the, the whole feel of the school, mm. um, not only for the students but for the teachers as well. You only have just a minute left, but I want you to talk about something. This is probably a discussion for a whole, a whole other show, but... I mean, in a way, when I want to say, okay, look, the people who are in the lower income levels, they don't vote as much. And so they haven't got the kind of political power. And so it would be very easy to say, well, okay, so they don't vote, so what's the point then? Uh, I mean, for politicians to say that, because a lot of what you're talking about, the kinds of things that need to be done, need to be done on a, on a policy level. And how do you explain to people that are voters that they need to be paying attention to this stuff that may not affect them directly. I mean, to me, you know, I, I think there's a couple of levels in which, on which uh, one can appeal and that I try to in this book to appeal to, to those of us who aren't uh, in low-income homes. One is, I think, that, that 51% number um, to, to realize that this is not this is not a side issue. This is not a few, you know, troubled kids who we can just ignore. This is most of our public school population right now. And if we want to have a successful country, um, you know, now and certainly 10 and 20 years in the future, writing off 51% of our students is not, you know, is not a healthy strategy. Um, and then I think the other thing that, that is an important message to, to again, to those of us who, who aren't growing up in, a, in that kind of adversity is is that things can change. I mean, I think that one of the reasons, I, I, you know, I think, I think American voters, American citizens are mostly very um, compassionate and want to help uh, the less fortunate in our society. I think one of the reasons that we sometimes resist is that it's just, it feels depressing. We think that nothing can change. We think that nothing can really, we yeah. can really help. Yeah. And the fact that, that this research suggests that there's a lot that we can do to help, there's a lot that we can all do to make things, uh, you know, to create more opportunity for low-income kids, I think it gives us a reason to try again. Paul Tuff, the author of Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. Paul, great to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.